Welcome to Cathedral of Rockies Amity Podcast. My name is Tyler, and I work here at Cathedral of Rockies with Pastor Ben Kramer. We are continuing on in our current series with this sermon being titled, The Jesus You Did Not Know. All right, first of all, the audio was not working for our recording of this service um, up until about three or four minutes into the sermon. So fortunately, we were able to get it working in time for the sermon, um, so I could at least get this podcast out to you. Uh, but because of that, uh, the sermon's going to kind of start partway in, and the reading, the text that Pastor Ben is working out of, uh, did not get captured, and uh, the audio did not. So, um, that text first is uh, Matthew chapter 5, and it's the Sermon on the Mount in which we get to kind of get an idea of who Jesus is and what the kingdom is like that he is bringing. So, well, uh, you can go read it yourself, but I'm going to go ahead and read what Ben read on screen during service in the beginning of this part that the audio did not get captured, and then we'll get you into his sermon from there. Okay, so this is Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 16. Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven." They were sitting there with the disciples in the crowd in first century Palestine on that mount hearing this sermon. But imagine that there's a cool breeze. You're sitting there in a hushed silence with a huge crowd hearing these words for the first time. And Jesus is this Jewish rabbi that has been causing a lot of stir in your countryside and, and you've grown up your whole life hearing about the story of God bringing your people out of Egyptian captivity and how God gave the law of Moses also up on a mountain, the Mount Sinai. And, and you are standing in the presence of the one you've heard rumors about, the being the very son of God. 
And now he's up on a mountain telling you about God's law and God's desire for you in the world. Can you imagine what that kind of experience would be? What was written on tablets of stone that Moses carried down is now being written on your hearts by the words of the Son of God. It's important for us 21st century Christians to practice putting ourselves in these moments of Scripture from time to time. Because when we don't, we forget that Jesus was a Jewish rabbi speaking to a largely Jewish community. And not only that, Jesus was a Jewish reformer. He was taking things that had become old and stuck in place and trying to reform them to revitalize the old traditions for what God was doing in the present. And if we don't take that powerful moment seriously, we can miss what God, what Jesus is trying to reform within us today, according to what God is trying to do in the world. I want us to look at a quote really quickly from uh, Robin R. Myers from his book, Saving God from Religion. It's a powerful quote. He says, consider this remarkable fact. In the Sermon on the Mount, there's not a single word about what to believe, only words about what to do and how to be. By the time the Nicene Creed is written, only three centuries later after Jesus, there is not a single word in it about what to do and how to be only words about what to believe. Notice when you heard that first part of the Sermon on the Mount, it was all about what is blessed in the sight of God and what actions are blessed in the sight of God. We are to be humble in spirit and trust that we have the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for they shall receive the kingdom of heaven. We are to be meek in the world, not proud, for the meek will inherit the earth, not the forceful or the arrogant. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. We are to be peacemakers, not warmongers or fearmongers, for peacemakers is what descendants of God look like. Blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are the peacemakers, for they are children of God. You see, Jesus is describing a way of being in the world and a way of acting in the world that is seen as blessed by God. God blesses those ways of being and doing in the world. When we are show mercy instead of hostility, God sees those movements as blessed. When we are peacemakers rather than warmongers, God sees those actions as blessed. Jesus doesn't give us a list of rigid set of beliefs that one must adhere to mentally by our knowledge in order to be saved. Jesus describes a way of being and doing in the world that is blessed by God's salvation. And that's the way that we are invited to. Jesus calls himself, after all, I am the way, the truth, and the rigid dogma of the church. No, no. I am the rigid theology by Methodists alone. Can you enter into the heaven? No, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Whoever looks upon me will be saved because Jesus is embodying a way of salvation in the world, a way of life, a way of truth that the Sermon on the Mount is really illustrating for us. If we want to know what the way of Jesus looks like, it is a meek, merciful, 
peacemaking, loving, forgiving way in the world. And that is the blessed way of God. We fast forward today to 21st century Christians, and I was raised in in a tradition that emphasized what you know about God is what is going to save you, right? So we fast forward to today, and it's all about rigid beliefs. You are saved by what you know about God. And we've made beliefs almost on the same level as God, Uh, Another one of my favorite authors, Karen Armstrong, she has this quote from her phenomenal book, The History of God. She says, only in the West, and we are in the West, America, Canada, Europe, only in the West could we have come to believe that God and our idea of God are the same thing. Let me read that again. I'm adding the thing at the end. That's, that's Ben Kramer, not Karen. Only in the West could we have come to believe that God and our idea of God are the same thing. You see, Jesus gives us a way of being and doing that leads to salvation, not just for us, but for others as well. Being comforters and merciful peacemakers doesn't just have to do with us, but my friends, when we are committed to being comforters and merciful and forgiving peacemakers, it changes the world around us too, right? Especially when we get others to be merciful and peacemaking and forgiving as well. It radically transforms the world around us. But you see, we've made belief such a central thing that we actually twist scripture because of it. And let me just give you a key example of this. The most famous passage of scripture is found in the book of Judges. No, I'm just kidding. It's found in the book of John. John 3.16, for God so loves the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. When I grew up, I'm like, well, I don't want to be in the perishing part of that, so I need to believe in Jesus, right? Well, how do we usually define belief in the Western world? Knowledge. So it's what we know. You are saved by your, whoever believes in me, whoever has their knowledge in me will be saved. Then I went to seminary and learned Greek. You know what the Greek actually says there? How we define belief, we often say it's not the Greek word for knowledge at all. (laughs) Whoever knows or has knowledge in me, no. It's the Greek word for trust. So wherever, and nine times out of 10, whenever you encounter the word for believe in the Bible, it means trust. So as you're reading, you can interpret it a lot better by saying, trust in Christ. Whoever trusts in me. And doesn't that change the dynamic? It puts the pressure on what you know or don't know. Jesus is coming back at the end of all of history and cosmic eternity to say, well, you didn't know the right theology, so you're gonna go to the bad place. No, no. It's illustrated by those who have this abiding, faithful trust in Christ, the way of Christ, not a particular set of knowledge, right? Let me give you an example I always like. I know cognitively that hot air balloon baskets are meant to protect and help keep humans safe as they lift them up in the air. I know that, but am I going to trust in that? No, (laughs) 
You can't get me in that basket. I know all the specs are there. The scientists have all said it's okay. But that step of trust, that's different than what I know, right? And there's a vast and critical difference. That's what, that's what faith looks like. We can know all of these things, but what is the way of being in the world? Is it this, this, this trust, this abiding faithful trust in God's abiding love that we are defined by rather than just what we know. Because my friends, Satan quotes scripture in the Bible. We can know the Bible front to back and still not have this abiding way of Christ in the world. So this trust, this faithful love is so important to, to nuance between our West definition of knowledge as belief. You see, when we make it all about our set of beliefs, our beliefs become the focus. It becomes all about us and our beliefs, but it's about God and our neighbors. <laughs> That's what the gospel is about. Our beliefs about the Bible almost become more important than the Bible itself. Our beliefs about God can be put on the same level as God. And you know what they call that in the Old Testament when our beliefs are put on the same level as God? An idol. <laughs> It's called an idol. In this framework, we can get so easily caught up in thinking that our beliefs can never change because we have made beliefs the center of our religion rather than the way of Jesus Christ. If our beliefs about God never change, that is when we know we've created an idol for ourselves. My friends, there's a vast and critical difference between worshiping our beliefs about God and actually worshiping God. There's a vast and critical difference between loving our beliefs about humanity and actually loving people, <laughs> right? We function as if we are now able, when we get into this framework, when we who believe in God operate as if our beliefs are done, we have it all figured out, our knowledge is complete about God, and they're static and unchanging, we are leading with the notion that our finite ability as human beings have able to capture this cosmic, infinite God and to know God completely. God, our beliefs about God is then placed on the same level of authority as God. And this is when we get turned into our beliefs turned as a weapon towards other people. Because when our beliefs get, are given the same authority as God, we can turn those against others as if we are God. I, my, one of my professors would always tell me, if you think you're right and everyone else who opposes you is evil and you're the primary authority on all truth, you're not worshiping God anymore. <laughs> Who do you think God is? If you're the absolute authority on all truth, who is that? You or God? Come on, it's pretty easy. It's God. God's the absolute authority, right? We are not. We are not God. And so once we get to the point to where we think we have captured all truth, we've actually dethroned Jesus and put ourselves there because it looks like humility. The Christian journey looks like humility, not as if we have it all figured out or have all the answers. My friends, the most harmful versions of Christianity out there are not the ones who allow all the questions. Those are actually one of the best representations of Christ when they allow all the questions seeking understanding. The absolute most harmful definitions of Christianity out there is when they give answers that aren't allowed to be questioned. 
Because God is a God who travels in the midst of our questions and our doubt. The Christian life is not about certainty. It's about faith. And faith is humble. All right, I got to preaching in my, my sermon. Um, the rest of Matthew 5 talks about, and so, um, so by this time in Israel's history, this is what Jesus is doing at the heart of this sermon. So many people, John even uh, uh, says this in his gospel, that Jesus arrived, but the people who were waiting for him didn't know him, Right? So, so Jesus had arrived at a community that had all these beliefs about who God should be. Jesus was going to come as a Messiah to overthrow Rome, violently, militarily, overthrow the empire, and save Israel. But Jesus showed up as this peasant from Nazareth, a carpenter, walking around not with a militia, but with fishermen and prostitutes and tax collectors. Not the kind of Messiah they were waiting for, right? He's going around telling people to put their swords away rather than building up the armaments. Even Peter was like, you're doing this thing wrong, Jesus. <laughs> he even rebuked Jesus like, I'm gonna go and die on the cross. And Peter's like, no, you're not. <laughs> you can't overthrow Rome with the dead Messiah, Jesus. Don't you know that? You can read that, in, and, and Jesus turns around and calls him not a great name. Get thee behind me, Satan, right? Because he didn't have the, the ways of God in his mind. He had the ways of humanity, this violent, overthrowing God rather than the peaceful, humble-seeking Christ. And so this is the scene that Jesus is on. Israel's taken the law of God and started using it to, to manipulate it so that they don't violate the letter of the law, but they violate God's heart behind it. And he consistently, he says things like this, like legal divorce, talks about adultery, murder, and so many other parts of the law that people had found ways to commit without breaking the letter of the law. And Jesus says this phrase over and over again at the end of his sermon. He says, you have heard it said this way, but I tell you, this is one of the most powerful parts of this sermon, my friends. Jesus is saying, you have heard it said, and this is the law of Moses. Long, long time, right? You have heard the law of Moses interpreted this way. The theology says this. You've interpreted your scriptures this way. And then Jesus says, but I tell you. <laughs> Let me give you one example of what he says here. You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's one of my favorite parts because I grew up in evangelicalism that put all of the responsibility for men not falling into lust on how women dressed. What does Jesus say here? But I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman, men, lustfully, who's the victim here in a patriarchal society? Women. Anyone, women are not the ones who are getting this condemnation, fellas. Okay? You shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery in his heart. <laughs> If your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's always interesting too, because my tradition read scripture literally. I didn't see any guys with eyes gouged out. I'm like, I just keep waiting for them to take that one really literally. Well, 
Fell over into lust in my mind. Guess I got to get rid of the right one now. You see, this is at the very heart of Christianity of what Jesus is trying to do. Reimagining, not staying stuck in rigid sets of beliefs. In Israel's time period, they were using legal divorce. Men were using legal certificates of divorce to send their wives who they were uninterested anymore into, into prostitution, poverty, or worse. And Jesus was trying to confront those things because the letter of the law they weren't abiding by. They were finding loopholes around it. Jesus was saying, it starts here. Following the law of God starts right here. And you are even reimagining God based on the things you want to get away with rather than abiding by the faithful love of God in the world. My friends, this is the Jesus that many people in our world don't know. Because Jesus is often seen and often depicted by Christians, unfortunately, as a rigid authoritarian judge, based, judging people based on what they know and sending them to hell if they don't have belief in the right things. That's the kind of Jesus a lot of our culture knows. But Jesus is actually wanting to invite us into a way of being, discipling our hearts to form us into meek people, forgiving people, merciful people, forgiving people, fasting people, praying people, people who want comfort in mourning, people who make peace. One last thing I want to say about this passage is uh, I had a, my Greek uh, professor was from Texas. So he had a thick Texas accent. And he's like, you know, we Texans don't have a problem interpreting texts like this, but all you Northwesterners do, because my Texas accent is pretty good, right? <laughs> because in the Greek there, you read, you have heard it said. But the best way to interpret that is y'all. Because <laughs> Jesus is talking to y'all, all y'all. He's not just talking to the individual you, Right? And when we read passages like this, we can think, you have heard it said, so you're the one at fault here. No, Jesus is calling for the collective community, the body of Christ. Y'all have heard it said, and y'all are getting it wrong. <laughs> y'all have heard it said, but I tell you this. And so we got to break again out of that individualistic perspective and think, this is a task for the community to do together in humility. We're not on our own as Christians. We get to do this together, amen? And so all y'all, we're in this together to understand what Christ is calling us to. The, Je the Jesus the world needs to know, my friends, starts with us. It starts with all y'all trusting in Jesus. And so our, our action steps this week, I really want us to focus on just two things. What are some of the common phrases or thoughts that you just assume to be part of your belief system that Jesus may be trying to reform and reframe for us? One of the things, the, the blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. My friends, I cannot think of another part of the Beatitudes that is so absent from Christians' participation with politics. Blessed are the meek the meek, not the power hungry, not the forceful, not those who will impose their way on the weak. It is blessed are the meek. I heard several Christian pastors break my heart when they said we can do away with that whole turning the other cheek thing. Jesus didn't mean it in times of conflict like this. I'm like, 
He was talking to Israel under a Roman empire. Who do you think you are, American Christian? (laughs) That turn the other cheek means we show that meekness because we have been we have been saved from death and violence from the son of God dying on the cross. We have been saved from death. So we don't need to deal in death anymore. So we turn the other cheek because it has no power over us anymore. You can slap me all you want. We are called to be the peacemakers. Blessed are the meek. So you have heard it said that meekness is no longer a Christian value. Jesus says, but I tell you, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And I could do one on each one of them. But what are some ways that have shaped American Christianity especially that Jesus is trying to reframe for us? The last action step is what, are, what areas of your life are you approaching with extremely rigid beliefs? And this is to me, I wrote this one to me. What ways are you approaching life with extremely rigid beliefs that Jesus may be wanting you to focus more on your way of being and doing in those areas? Oftentimes, I especially, and I confess this, I can get so caught up on if I'm believing the right thing about something like poverty that I may never get involved in working with poverty, Right? I believe all the right things. I have all the right sayings. All the, all, but am I getting involved in actually a way of being that helps reduce poverty and it brings good news to the poor? So examine those two action steps um, in, 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 your, in your belief system this week and know that Jesus calls us to abiding trust. Our knowledge matters, right? What we know matters, but it's not supposed to lead the way. Our trust is supposed to lead the way. Because our knowledge, if it gets stuck and rigid, not even God can come and unstick it for us, right? We have to allow God to be allowed to change our beliefs rather than our beliefs allowed to not change our perspective of God. Amen. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to, we'd very much appreciate it if you would subscribe to this podcast as well as rate and review it. Also, if you'd like to connect with us, you can email us at amity.campus at boisefumc.org. That email will be in the show notes. Finally, as a smaller congregation, our budget is pretty tight. If you'd like to help out and donate to us, there is a link to do so in the show notes. Of course, no pressure, only if you're feeling called to give. But more income does mean possibly more content and better quality of content, as well as supporting our current ministries and those we'd like to expand on. Thank you. I hope you have a wonderful rest of the day.